Joshua chapter 8. If you'll join me there as we continue our study through Joshua, we now have sort of an upswing from where we were there in chapter 7 last week. We saw last time, unfortunately, in chapter 7, the children of Israel experienced quite a, a shocking defeat. They weren't expecting that. They had just had an incredible victory there at Jericho as God did a miracle and the power of God was manifested on their behalf. And uh, because of what was some sin among the camp where one man, Achan, had disobeyed uh, God's instruction regarding the victory in Jericho and had stolen some of the spoils of war for himself, some gold, uh, a Babylonian garment, and had taken to himself some of the things that God said they were not to touch that they were not to have any interaction with and had selfishly taken those things because of that sin among the camp. Uh, the whole congregation was weakened. Uh, on top of that, it seems there was a little bit of self-confidence and prayerlessness that existed among the people after the battle of Jericho. And as a result, as they went up to Ai, which was a much smaller enemy, which seemed that they could conquer much more easily from their perspective in the flesh. Remember, the men came back with a report and told Joshua, listen, uh, obviously we're on a roll here. God seems to be working on our behalf and we're experiencing some victory. So don't trouble everyone. Ai seems like a, a lot smaller enemy, a lot easier to conquer. So don't trouble the whole army. Just two, maybe 3,000 fighting men should be more than sufficient. We'll go up there, we'll knock them out quick and move on to the next uh, victory, the next stage of success that God has for us. And unfortunately, uh, as a result of that overconfidence and the sin that no one was aware of that had weakened them as a people that was not yet dealt with from this man Achan, it tells us that they suffered a great defeat. 36 men died as the result of that, and they basically, with their tails between their legs, were chased back by the people of Ai, back away from their effort to try and conquer them. And Joshua, not understanding what was going on, sought the Lord. The Lord revealed to him, Joshua, get off your face. Uh, there's sin in the camp that needs to be dealt with. And that sin has weakened you as my people and it's caused you to be vulnerable. And because of that, the sin needs to be dealt with. And so Joshua, obediently to the Lord, uh, went through a process as they prayed and they sought God's revelation. God revealed who the sin, uh, in a sense, was uh, happening among and what needed to be dealt with. And after God judged, if you would, that sin and removed it from their midst after it was then reconciled and there was resolution in some sense spiritually uh, the anger of the Lord the, the, the sense of God's presence was uh, being against them was turned back towards them favorably so it's after experiencing this rather unfortunate defeat and those events that we come to chapter 8 now and it's somewhat of an encouraging thing to read there in chapter 8 verse 1 now the Lord said to Joshua notice God's still speaking God didn't stop speaking to Joshua just because they had a defeat or they made a mistake. And that's a really encouraging thing to me. Aren't you glad that God's not like people? Uh, sometimes with people, we make a mistake or we fail in some way. And all of a sudden, what are people good for? They'll cut you right off. That's it. You fail me once, that's it. And, and people are quick to, to, to cut us off sometimes in life and don't have a whole lot of mercy or a whole lot of grace. But, but God's not like that. Uh, God's patient. God's long-suffering. He continues to speak to us even in the midst of our, our greatest moments of, of failure. He, he's looking to get our attention again. And so God continues to speak. And it's just a evidence of his grace. The Lord speaks to Joshua. And look what he speaks to him. Great encouragement. He says, Joshua, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Now, I think God no doubt is saying that because obviously Joshua was apparently feeling fearful and he was probably lacking courage. He was probably discouraged at this point. Whenever we fail, whenever we have a defeat, if you would, in our lives, a spiritual defeat, we fail the Lord, we stumble spiritually, 
Boy, the natural response to that, isn't it? We, we sort of get a little nervous. We get intimidated. We think God's going to deal with us like an angry boss maybe or, or a harsh judge. And so we get a little fearful. Oh, my goodness, what have I done? I mean, now I'm, I've lost my ranking as an apostle. I'm going to be a B-postle the rest of my life. And God's going to not bring about all the good things he had planned for me because I failed the Lord and I've made a mistake. And we start to get fearful and worried and concerned what the result of that's going to be because we know we've stumbled in some way spiritually or maybe we've grossly sinned in some capacity and we start to struggle with our own condemnation and guilt and we get dismayed and we get discouraged and and our defeat begins to really weigh upon us. And this is a chapter here where God is demonstrating to us that he is the God of the second chance. In fact, much more than that, I think he's the God of the 772nd chance i know in my life anyway maybe not in yours uh, but he is a god that continues to be merciful and gracious and it seems so many times uh, the lord is bringing us back from a, a prior failure he's dusting us off and picking us up again and showing us his grace and, and he's so encouraging in the midst of our failures so don't be afraid don't be dismayed in other words i'm not done with you I'm not going to shelf you. I'm not going to set you aside now because you failed as if somehow God is shocked by our failures anyway. The reality is, is that we're shocked by our failures because I found in my life that typically the problem is, is I think a lot more highly of myself than I really ought to. You know, you read the Psalms and the psalmist says that he remembers our frame that we are dust. And as a father has pity or compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion upon us and that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. See, the problem is, is that we don't remember that we're nothing other than just weak balls of dust. We forget that. And so because of that, we fail and we're so shocked and we're so surprised. That's why a lot of times we have such a, almost an overreaction to our failures and mistakes and we get so worried. Oh my goodness, I failed. I can't believe it. Or, or I'm just so depressed and discouraged and we're all dismayed and we're just, you know, our spirit is just the life is zapped out of us. And the reality is, is if somehow we were expecting more of ourselves than maybe what we should have. And God's not shocked by that. In fact, the reality is God knows your sin better than you do. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, you weren't even born and you hadn't even started sinning yet. So we're shocked by our sins, but God's never shocked by our sins. Because when he died on the cross, he died for all your sins before you even began the process of carrying out your sins and your failures and your shortcomings. He's more familiar with my sin than I am. And so because of that, so often the Lord is so gracious and encouraging. And here for Joshua, it must have felt so wonderful as he's wrestling with the feelings, the thoughts like we all do, thinking, oh my goodness, what, what have we done? What does the future hold? The past is against us. Oh no, maybe the future is not going to come to pass. And here God is showing Joshua, as we'll see in this chapter, that one defeat or failure, listen, does not mean the end of a believer's usefulness for God. A defeat or a failure does not mean the end of your usefulness to God. I mean, think throughout the Bible of how many individuals God honestly shows us were used by God before and even after their failures. Abraham, failures, mistakes. God used him again. Moses, great failure, grievous failure, murdered a man, tried to bury him in the sand, and yet God still used him despite his great failure in his past. Here, Joshua had a, a mistake in his leadership. David made great mistakes. Peter made great mistakes. Men make mistakes. Even the greatest of men are men at best. And how wonderful to know that we can fail and yet God can still use our lives. If there's genuine repentance, if there's humility, God can restore. There may be a process, but God can restore and God can continue to work through our lives. And I think it was Henry Ford that said years ago, failure is just an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. And boy, th th there's great truth. It's just an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. And that's what's going to happen here. We'll see with Joshua. So Joshua, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. I, it's okay what just happened. And he says, now I want you notice to take all the people of war with you and arise and go up to Ai. What was Ai? The place he just failed. The thing that he was just defeated in. 
Now, here's another thing. A lot of times when we fail or we're defeated, we think that's it. I failed in that area. I've been defeated in that area. Sometimes we make an effort to try and conquer an area of our flesh, some enemy maybe that defeats us and we fall prey to our sin nature again as these things picture the spiritual life and conquering territory over the flesh and entering into the promised life god has for us in victory and sometimes we experience defeat in an area of our spiritual life and so we just assume okay i guess i'm just always going to be defeated in that area i'll never overcome that area of sin i'll never overcome that habit or that struggle or that area of my flesh that just seems to have really defeated me and i fell prey to Listen, that's not true. Just because you failed in the past doesn't mean that there's not an opportunity for present victory. The, the power of Christ, the promise of Christ for victory over sin is available in our lives. And I, I think this is so beautiful. They failed and God says, okay, you failed because you went about it the wrong way in your own strength. But if you go about it my way, you can have victory. I can still give you victory. The promise of God to give them victory and conquer over this was still there. So he says, take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai, to the very place where you just failed. See, I have given Ai into your hand, the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king. Look at this. Just as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. So God tells them now, listen, I still want you to have victory over AI. In fact, I've already given you victory over AI. Again, this is the way the, the conquering of the land worked for them. We've seen this from the very beginning where God said to Joshua, every place you set the sole of your foot in the land of Canaan, I have already given it to you. In other words, from God's perspective, it was past tense. God says, it's already yours. I've already delivered it. My promise is that you'll have victory over it. But you have to now go and appropriate the promises by faith and obedience. They had to participate and believe the promises of God and walk in the victory that God wanted to give to them. And here God again assures them, I've given the people, the city, the king all into your hand and you're going to do to Ai, God says confidently from his perspective, exactly as you did to the king of Jericho. But we're going to notice what God is going to do is to tell them to go about this particular victory in a different way than they experience victory with Jericho. In fact, one of the ways that there's a very distinct difference is not just the battle plan itself, but notice in verse 2 there, he told them as a part of them now fighting in this conflict, the first conflict, God just dropped the walls for them miraculously by faith. In this, they're actually going to engage in warfare through an ambush. And as a result of that, because they're going to participate, the first battle of Jericho, God said, don't touch anything. It belongs to the treasury of the Lord and don't touch any of the accursed things. But look what God says in verse 2. This time, when you fight and you conquer Ai, he says... It's spoil and cattle you shall take for yourselves. In other words, they could take the spoils of war in this particular battle when they had victory, different from Jericho. Now, let me just say this as a, a sideline in connection to that. I want you to take notice. Had Achan only waited, he could have had all the gold, silver, and garments he wanted. But what did he do? In Jericho, when God said, listen... Let me decide what you take and what you don't take. Let me decide what I want to give to you and I don't want to give to you. Let me be the one to decide what's best for you. And Achan decided, no, 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 I'm going to decide what's best for myself. And he took for himself. He selfishly went after for himself. He stole for himself and chose for himself. And as a result, it was sinful wrong outside of God's will and there were great consequences. Had he only waited literally a matter of days, God was in essence going to say, you can have everything you want. There you go. It's all yours. In the second battle, God was going to give him everything he went and stole for himself. Boy, this is such a great reminder how important it is for us to learn how to wait upon the Lord. 
and to believe that God wants to give us his best. God wants to bless us with opportunity and blessings in different forms and capacities. God wants to reward us, but we need to be wise enough to let God be the one to do that in his time and his way. And the wise man lets God choose for him. Lord, you give me what you want to give me when you want to give it to me. Our problem a lot of times is we don't have the faith or we don't exercise the trust to believe that God's good and God's going to do that. So whether it's the single person who is just so zealous to get married, which is something maybe that God does have in store. Maybe God does want to bless you with a spouse. It's a good and a godly thing. Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes the single person not willing to trust and to believe and to wait and let God give what God wants to give. Instead, like Achan, they prematurely take what they want for themselves. They compromise. They make a concession. And the, the, perhaps the, the, the Christian ends up marrying an unbeliever and make a concession because they selfishly can't wait on God's timing. So they take to themselves a relationship, a boyfriend, a, a, a girlfriend that becomes a husband or a wife, and they end up entering into sin and making a mess for themselves by marrying a non-believer. And had they maybe just waited a few more days, one more victory, God would have given them their heart's desire in a much better way and it would have been God's will and they could have enjoyed it to their heart's extent. We have to be really careful in this area. What a sad and fitting reminder here. Achan, had he only waited, God was going to give them everything that he longed for but he didn't wait for God's timing and a lot of pain and problems could have been avoided had he had only recognized that reality. So God here now tells Joshua, listen, we're going to fight this battle again even though you were defeated, this time you're going to have victory. And the difference is this time, I want you to go about it my way, not your way. I want you to let me lead the way, follow my guidance, take on my approach to this, not your idea. Don't take the spy's idea, fleshly human wisdom. We're going to do this my way. And notice the way that God is going to do this is completely different than Jericho. Jericho, they marched around the city. It was an entire week process. March around, march around, seventh day, march around seven times. Then miraculously, the walls just fell when they all shouted. Here's another battle. Notice the approach this time militarily is completely different. It's not a miraculous thing where walls are coming, falling down as a result of just yelling out loud and God just responding with great power. This time, God says, you're actually going to be engaged in actual warfare. I want you to set an ambush. I want you to go out at night and I want you to set yourselves up and I want you to get yourselves in three different battle arrangements with groups of soldiers and you're actually going to enter into armed conflict. And here we take notice that when God works, he does not always work the exact same way in every situation, every battle and every circumstance. I think that's in some ways wonderful. God's a God of variety. And God wants us to trust him and not trust a strategy. God wants us to trust him and not trust a method or a process. That's why when you look throughout the Bible, particularly, for example, at Jesus's healing ministries, you ever notice that when Jesus heals people in the New Testament, the gospel accounts, he, he never seems to heal people the same way twice. Why is that? Because he doesn't want people to be trusting in a formula to put God into some uh, strategy of, okay, this is the way you do it, because then what would happen? What do we need God for anymore? We know the strategy. We know the formula. We don't need God. We know God's formula. So we'll just trust in the formula. We'll work the formula. We got it. We got it figured out now. There it is. Boom, bam, vision statement, ministry. We got it all figured out. We got our formula now. The formula works. We don't need God. That's not how the Lord wants it to be. The Lord wants us to trust him not trust the strategy. So because of that, sometimes he mixes things up and, and why isn't it working? It worked last time. Well, be, that was how God worked last time. This is this time. Maybe God wants to do it a little bit differently this time. He's a God of variety and he wants to get all the glory so he works in a way where we have to depend upon him and we have to have faith in him and we stay in close communion with him because Lord, you may not work the same way this time. And listen, that's an okay thing. How does God want to work this time? Maybe he wants to do it differently in your life. Let him do it differently. Maybe there's a new thing that he wants to do or a new way he wants to overcome it. Maybe you overcame sin in a particular way in this area, this way, and maybe God's going to say, look, I'm going to give you victory again, but it's going to come about a little bit differently this time. 
And, and God may work in a unique way that's somewhat different, that involves something of a little bit of variation from a prior time. So they're going to now set an ambush to conquer this city. So verse 3 now goes on to record. We'll just read the account of how they, in a sense, operated what God told them to do. So Joshua rose and all the people of war to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and he sent them away by night. And he commanded them saying, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. And then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city and it will come about when they come out against us as at the first that we shall flee before them for they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city for they will say they are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore, we will then flee before them. They'll pretend that they're in a sense retreating again and you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand and it will be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire according to the commandment of the Lord you shall do see I have commanded you so this time much different not two three thousand men that was all they thought they needed oh all we need is two three thousand men it's we can conquer this with our strength two three thousand men that's good enough what did they do they underestimated the strength of their enemy God says to them you're going to have victory but notice this time for victory look back up in verse 1 he says all the people of war shall go with you that's a big difference they said we only need two three thousand people we can handle it why because they underestimated the strength of their enemy and they got a whooping and whenever we underestimate the strength of our flesh, we're going to find ourselves defeated spiritually. Our flesh is a lot stronger than we often recognize. And a lot of times if we discount the strength, the power of our sin nature, we find ourselves defeated and failing in the area of sin and temptation and falling prey to it. And God says, look, your sin nature is much stronger than you envision and so there is no lack of resources. You should pull out all stops, anything you got to do to conquer your sin nature. And here God says to them, you take all the men of war, set an ambush. So Joshua is going to basically, in his, in, in his strategy here now, set apart three different military groups. He takes 30,000 men, we read there in verse 3. He sends them away at night and he tells them to go and sit on the western side of the city and to wait there in ambush. And then Joshua, with it seems the majority of the military of Israel, then begins to advance in a frontal attack the next day, the 15 miles up towards Ai. And as the people of Ai see them, they're then tempted to be drawn out of the city because they think, are you kidding me? These same guys that we just whooped up on, they're going to come back again? What are, and now they're self-confident, just like Israel was. So they confidently come out and Joshua says, they're going to think they whooped us before. They, so they're going to come rushing out towards us once again with great confidence and we'll act like we're intimidated and fearful and then we'll turn and we'll back off and we'll begin to retreat again. And as we retreat, we'll pull them away from the city and then you sitting there in ambush can rush into the city, overcome the city, set it ablaze on fire and then they'll be what? Stuck in the middle between the men set in the ambush and those who had drawn them out of the city. So God gives them this unique battle plan of how they were to do it. But again, Joshua reminds them, verse 7, when you rise from the ambush and seize the city, the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. Again, it was not just their human achievement. It was God's divine victory. This was God's plan. That's why it worked. And if it's God's way, it works. When it's our way, it often ends in defeat and problems and does not accomplish, no matter how great of an effort we put forth, victory in the things of the Lord. So he says, God is going to deliver it into your hand. And when you've taken the city, set it on fire according to the commandment of the Lord, you shall do. That is so key, according to the commandment of the Lord. In your spiritual life, if you want to walk in victory over your flesh, if you want to have 
the ability to defeat your sin nature and walk in the victory of the Spirit. If you want to be able to obey the Lord, then you have to do that very thing. You have to become someone who understands how to obey the commandment of the Lord. That you listen to the Lord. That you listen to Jesus. What is Jesus telling you to do? A lot of times, well-meaning people will tell you, well, this is what you need. You just need to do this, man. Just, this is how you got to just handle this. And we just, uh, when, when I fought AI, this is what I did. Listen, you, God's going to work in your life uniquely. You, you are a sheep of Jesus and, and he's the shepherd and he knows your voice and he knows you and he knows all your challenges and your weaknesses and your personality and your idiosyncrasies and your background. So you got to listen to the Lord. Don't take somebody else's battle plan to try and fight your battles. Listen to the Lord. What's the Lord commanding you to do? You obey the Lord. That is the safe way. And that ultimately is the successful way to be able to have victory in our spiritual lives. Verse 9 says, Joshua therefore sent them out and they went to lie in ambush and they stayed between Bethel and Ai. So Bethel was another city not too far off from Ai on the western side of Ai, but Joshua lodged that night among the people. So this is the night before the battle took place, after he's set the men into their different flanks of the locations where they would be. And Joshua, verse 10, rose up early in the morning. He mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near, and they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. So he took about, verse 12, 5,000 men. This is the third contingency of soldiers, another group of 5,000. And he set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. Now the purpose of that uh, flank of soldiers there was basically to prohibit the people of Bethel from being able to come in and bring reinforcements for Ai. So he sets another 5,000 men there to cut off the opportunity for the men of Bethel to come in and help Ai when the ambush would happen. And when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Now it happened when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose and went out against Israel to battle he and all his people at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in Ai called together to pursue them. And they pursued Joshua and were drawn from the city. And there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel, just like planned. They took the bait there. So they left the city open and they pursued Israel. So exactly according to God's wise plan, things unfold directly the way that God said they would according to his instruction because again God knows the hearts of all men God knows what works in what situations they take the bait they draw them out it says not one man remained in the city of Ai or Bethel they all came out pursuing after Joshua and his soldiers self-confidently leaving the city completely vulnerable now for this ambush to come rushing into the city at this moment. Now, here's something I want to draw to your attention if you haven't noticed yet. Think about this. What is God doing here? God uses, if you would, basically, the past mistake and defeat of Joshua and Israel to bring about their current success and victory. Is that pretty awesome or what? The very thing that they failed in which was they went up self-confidently, they acted like they could beat them, the people of Ai beat them down and overcame them very easily, which caused them to then be very overconfident. God says, you know what? I am such an amazing God. I'm such a Romans 8:28 God, where the Bible says that we know that God works what? All things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That even includes our failures. Your mistakes, 
my dumb decisions, my poor choices, the, and the consequences that do come with them. doesn't mean there's not consequences attached. doesn't mean there may not be loss and, and pain and, and problems attached to it. But God is so amazing here. He actually uses the very defeat and failure, their own mistake, as the basis to actually help them succeed and have victory in the future somehow. I mean, that's pretty incredible. I, I always say God's like a master chemist, man. I mean, he can just take any combination and go, oh, there's my life, Lord. It's quite a chemistry project. Indeed it is. This is chemistry 507. I mean, I've never seen this before. And all our mistakes and messes and problems and we make poor choices and bad decisions. But how incredible is it that God is so able to connect all the dots and pull all the strings and work everything in accordance with his perfect will that even our mistakes... God can use those mistakes and somehow turn them around and work things together where that becomes somehow a part of what participates in your future victories, in your future success, in your future blessings. Why? Because we learn things from our mistakes. Sometimes God just brings beauty out of ashes. Sometimes we become more zealous and more concerned. Lord, I am not repeating that. I'm going to listen to you this time. I'm going to take my time and seek you, Lord, because I'm not, I don't want to go down that path again. And therefore, our mistake makes us more sensitive. We become a more obedient servant. We listen to his spirit and, and we follow the Lord. And he uses that past failure to make us presently even more fruitful and more victorious in our lives. What a wonderful thing. Tonight, if you're thinking, oh, man, that mistake, that failure, that series of mistakes. Listen, God can redeem that. The book of Joel tells us, that God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Years of devastation and destruction and problems. God can work that somehow if you submit it all to him. And Lord, here's everything, all the failures. and I just lay it all at your feet. Somehow God can marvelously work that for your good still. And he can bring restoration and victory and help. What a great encouragement to recognize that God can do that even with our failures. So they now come out of the city. The city is open, completely vulnerable. Verse 18, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out your spear that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. It seems this was the signal now to those men, the 30,000, waiting there to ambush the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place and ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand and they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. So they had no power to flee this way or that. And the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers now, when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they then turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught, look at this, stuck in the middle now, caught in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that. And they struck them down. So they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought to Joshua. So the plan worked perfectly, exactly as God said it would. Look at verse 24. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying, circle this word, all the inhabitants of Ai, because that's what God told them to do, complete obedience. Made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them. And when they had fallen by the edge of the sword, until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. Again, keep in mind, this was not just a military battle alone. This was God's divine judgment upon a heathen, pagan people who were vile in their practices. And so this wasn't just God giving Israel the land of loan. This was also God using Israel as his instrument to judge these nations that were defiled and had just sunk into such depravity and had never repented of such. For Joshua did not draw back his hand, we read verse 26, with which he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed 
all the inhabitants of Ai. I want you to take notice there, the emphasis the Holy Spirit no doubt is giving to us this purposely, verse 24, 25, and 26. He made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai with the edge of the sword till they were consumed. It says there that he did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Again, take notice. There were no concessions. There were no compromises. It was complete obedience and completely putting to death the enemy that God told them needed to be removed from their midst. And this, again, as I've said before many times, the book of Joshua for us is a picture of what the spiritual life is intended to be like when we seek to walk in the promised life of the Spirit and conquer our enemies, the enemies of our flesh. We cannot make concessions with any area of our flesh. We cannot make compromises with any area of our flesh. The Bible says to us in Colossians chapter 3 that we are to put to death our members which are of the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. In the same way, it says here that they utterly destroyed all the inhabitants. They completely dealt severely a death blow to these enemies because if they would have left any of them available it would have become a snare for them to ultimately be snagged into unhealthy and ungodly practices in their own lives the bible tells us that we have one responsibility to our flesh which our sinful nature which is to do what the bible says spiritually has already happened in christ that is that we're to crucify our flesh and its passions we're to put the flesh to death we cannot make little concessions with our flesh. It is a dangerous thing when as a Christian, we begin to have this mentality, well, I mean, I'm really severe in this area and I really cut off that area, but I mean, this area, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's just a little thing I got going on over here. I mean, it's just, and, and so you make this little compromise with it. You make this little allowance for yourself. You're going to make a little, it, it, you know, I'm going to be severe with that and strict with that and I'm putting this to death. And no more of this and no more of that. And, and, and we're very serious about the other areas of our flesh and putting them to death. But then some little area of our flesh, we want to rationalize or justify. Well, it's, it's okay to make a little allowance and God understands. I mean, this is, you know, this is kind of my little thing here. And so God understands. It's just an area of weakness. And, and, but, but, I, but I got it under control. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't control me. I, I got it under control. It's just a little allowance. I just need my little fix once in a while. Well, let me tell you something. You do that, it's going to fix you all right. Because it will rise up and it will conquer you and snag you and that little thing will end up destroying you. That little thing, the Bible tells us, be careful of the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. The little tiny things. We want to make a little allowance for our flesh in some area. The Bible tells us that we are to put to death our flesh, that we're to deal with it severely. Because sin is a powerful influence and our flesh is much stronger than we think and it is very deceptive. And it can be something that causes great devastation. So here they put to death, they utterly destroyed the enemy that God told them needed to be removed and we need to utterly destroy and deal severely with any area of our flesh that is sinful and ungodly that we know is something that stands between us and the life of victory that God wants us to walk in spiritually. And do you notice how they did it? The Bible records there in verse 24. It says they struck them down by the edge of the sword. By the edge of the sword. Can't miss that. Because the Bible tells us spiritually what is one of our most critical weapons. Well, the Bible tells us that we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Hebrews 4 tells us. That the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. So the sword of the spirit, Ephesians 6 tells us, and the spiritual warfare that we use when we put on the whole armor of God, that we have the sword of the spirit. And that is how the sword of the spirit, the word of God, doing the very thing that you are doing tonight, exposing your heart, your soul, your mind to the word of God, its truth, its power, going into your life, reading the word of God, being in the word of God, saturating your life and absorbing yourself in the word of God is going to be the one 
key thing, the Word of God working in conjunction with the Spirit of God in your life is what's going to give you victory over sin. It's the thing that's going to be your greatest asset. You become serious about the Word of God and you take the truth of the Word of God and it will cut through the lies and the deceptions that tell you it's okay to nurse this area of your flesh or have this little allowance. No, you let the truth of God's Word be the thing that cuts through those lies and let it slay and put to death what it needs to. And when the roaring lion comes and growls and does what he does, you know, you take the Word of God, you take the sword of the Spirit and you just shove it down his throat. And you stand upon the truth of the Word Yes, this is tempting. Yes, this is hard. But God, your word tells me that no temptation has seized me except it is common to all men. And you are faithful. And that with every temptation, you provide a way of escape so that we can bear up under it. And you won't let me be tempted beyond what I'm able. God, your word tells me that. It promises me that. God, your word says that sin shall not have dominion over me. Lord, your word tells me, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Lord, if I obey your word over what I feel, over what I think, over every ounce of my emotions and my passions and my desires, Lord, if I do that, then I can overcome this. And how wonderful it is that we can abstain from the fleshly lusts that war against our soul by using the greatest weapon of our warfare spiritually, which is the Word of God. Do you want more victory over sin in your life? The Word of God is the key. The Word of God is the key. It's a beautiful thing that God has given to us to have the power to help us have victory over the fleshly enemies, our struggles internally and in our lives in so many ways. So verse 27 says, Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as booty for themselves according to the word of the Lord which he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as the sun was going down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. So Joshua does what was very cultural in military victories of that day, that the king or the leader of a city or a territory that was conquered often was, was hung outside of that area basically as a testament if you try and resist us or you try and uh, throw off our, our efforts then this will be the same thing that will happen to you but Joshua as well obediently here according to what the law said did not allow his corpse his dead body to hang on a tree longer than the day he took it down and he did the respectful thing according to what the law of God said which was to then bury the body after it hung there as a testimony for the day well, look at this now, verse 30, as the chapter kind of wraps up what takes place. It's interesting. It says, now Joshua built an altar. Remember, that was the place of sacrifice and a place of worship. Built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man wielded an iron tool. Remember, that was the Old Testament command of how they were to build an altar. It wasn't to be ornate or artistic or fancy because God didn't want the attention being upon the externals. But he wanted the people to be able to focus fully upon God in their worship. So they built the altar out of rough stones the way that God told them to. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and they sacrificed peace offerings. So they begin to uh, put forth these offerings of worship. Again, remember the burnt offering was the offering of consecration. Uh, as they would take the animal that was sacrificed and put to death and, and a part of uh, of the animal, excuse me, the, the full carcass, excuse me, of the animal and the burnt offering was put upon the altar and the entire thing was consumed in the fire. No portion of it was eaten by the worshiper or the priest. The entire thing was consumed or burnt in the fire. And it was a way in their worship uh, of expressing, God, we desire to be fully consecrated over to you. Lord, we desire that every part of our life would just be consumed in the things of you that we would be fully given over to you Lord you are the consuming fire and just take all of us we don't want any of it for ourselves so it was, a, it was an offering of worship of, of just dedicating and consecrating one's life over to the Lord and the sacrifice of the peace offering also mentioned there in verse 31 that was the fellowship offering here it was the opposite 
This was more of a communal meal. It was more of a of, of a, a spiritual barbecue where you put a portion of the meat upon the altar and you let it burn in the fire and you also took a portion of it and you ate a portion of it. And the idea was like having a, a, a peaceful time of communion with God. It was a, a fellowship meal that you were sharing fellowship and relationship with God. So there's this picture here of, of dedication over the Lord, consecrating their lives, as well as just a time of communion and fellowship there with the Lord as they build this altar. Now, here's what's very interesting. It says they built the altar, verse 30, in Mount Ebal. Now, that's the area of the Valley of Shechem. That's about 30 miles from where Joshua and his men are at at this time who've just had this victory over Ai. And to me, this is a very beautiful picture here. After an incredible victory, they rout the city. There's this great victory. No doubt they've got to be so encouraged, so enthusiastic. Great victory again. I'm sure there's a part of it, maybe even among the troops, where again, typical momentum and human enthusiasm. Let's go and take on the next people. Who's next on the list? God's on the move now. And, and probably a lot of enthusiasm. Let's go and do the works of God. Let's conquer the next territory. And Joshua says, no, you know what? We need to hit the pause button and we need to travel a little bit away from all this and just go and worship the Lord. And we need to just go seek the Lord. And they travel 30 miles away. They kind of detach from all the activity, the, the warfare, the doing the works of God to just go spend time alone worshiping God and seeking God. And to me, this is a very beautiful picture because sometimes we have to be careful in our Christian lives. We get so caught up in the battles of the Lord and the works of the Lord that sometimes we forget about worshiping the Lord. And we need to take time to stop and to worship the Lord, to be at the altar, to, to sacrifice praise unto the Lord. The Bible says the fruit of our lips is the sacrifice of praise to the Lord. And, and we need times of worship as well. And we need to make sure that we're willing to detach, if you would, from all the activities of spiritual life to spend time worshiping in spirit and truth. This is an important balance if we want to be successful spiritually, if we want to be fruitful and victorious in the things of the Lord so that we're not operating in our own strength but we're coming forth from communion and fellowship and time of strength with the Lord as a result of being in his presence, seeking him and worshiping him. Verse 32, it says, And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he then wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. So he inscribes now, like on this pillar, some of the words of Moses, whether it's the whole book of Deuteronomy or just the Ten Commandments, we're not certain, but some portion he wrote on these stones of the law of Moses. And then all Israel with their elders and the officers and judges stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, the other half in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. So what's being done here, it wasn't too long ago, hopefully you remember, is basically the obedient fulfillment of what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 27. Where there he said, when you get into the land, there'll be this valley between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And I want you to put half the people on one side and half the people on the other side. And remember, they were to call out the blessings and the curses. And it was like a natural amphitheater, the valley in between, so that the people could hear. And as they called forth the blessings, you know, you know, blessed would be the one you know, of God if they would obey the Lord in this way and that way. And God would bring his blessings from heaven. And the people would say, amen, amen. And then, you know, and cursed is the man who turns away from God, and these would be the curses they would bring upon themselves. So now as an act of obedience, as they're in the land, they're fulfilling obediently what God has told them to do through what Moses' instruction was to them to bless the people. And afterward, verse 34, it says, he then read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, according to all that is written in the book of the law, there was not a word of all Moses commanded which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. So what a, a fitting conclusion to this uh, time of, of worship as they 
separate themselves. They seek the Lord. They build an altar. There's sacrifices being made. Blood is being shed. And now it tells us that a part of their time of worship included very seriously, verse 34 and 35, the reading of the word of God. And I love how it's described there in verse 34 that it says Joshua read the blessings and the cursings. Oh, I mean, not the curses. Just read us the good stuff. Can you just give us the rubies of Romans and the syrupy sweet Psalms? Not that Leviticus lettuce stuff. Not the, not the, not the curse stuff. I mean, give, don't give us the heavy revies. Just give us the good stuff. Make us feel good. Tell us it's going to be a good day. Please, give us the good stuff. Don't give us the heavy stuff. No, he read the warnings and the promises. Both. The blessings and the curses. Why? Because we need to hear the full truth. Because that's what makes us a balanced person. That's what makes us revere God and become healthy spiritually. It says, verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly. The idea is the whole counsel of God, all of it. It was a balanced diet of the word of God. And that is what we all need for spiritual health. Not just going through the scriptures like a salad bar and saying, well, I like this chapter, but that one, I don't like that one. That's called salad bar theology, I call that. Where people go up and they, you know, they pick and choose from the Bible. I really like this, but I'm going to keep that kind of stuff off my plate. I don't want to digest that stuff because I don't like that. Because that doesn't fit with the lifestyle that I want to live. Or that challenges some area that, that, that maybe kind of re reproves me. And, and so I don't want to have to deal with that. So I'm going to set, no, we need all the word of God. We need its cautions and its encouragements. We need its instructions and we need its rebukes. We need its guidance and its correction. We need its promises and we need its warnings. We need it all. But that's what makes us healthy. That's what makes you healthy because that's what you're doing even tonight. You're, you're adding to your spiritual health and, and the diet of God's word by going through it line by line and chapter by chapter, which makes us become healthy and helps us to walk in victory. I want to leave you with a verse tonight as we enter into worship. Listen to this. Psalm 37 says this regarding the righteous man or woman. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholds him with his hand. How wonderful to know in this room tonight, I'm sure if we were to raise our hand and be honest, every one of us has stumbled, we've falled, we've failed. But how wonderful to know that we serve a God because of the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ that though we fall, we're not utterly cast down. Because the Lord catches us when we fall. And he sets us back up straight. Sometimes he does it through his word, by his spirit, but he sets us back up and he puts us back on our feet and keeps us walking in his victory by his spirit. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray together.